We start with Jason Kenney's Move to Alberta ad campaign. And the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, joins me now. Premier, thank you very much for coming on today. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. So we can't miss these ads right now. They're playing all the time here on CKNW. Uh, A lot of listener interest in this. I'm going to play one of the ads here, Premier. We're not going to charge you for this one, okay? So this one's a a freebie. So let's play one of these ads, and then I'll get your thoughts about what you're trying to accomplish here. Here's one of the ads. Hey, Vancouver. Thinking about moving out of British Columbia? Why not consider Alberta? It has higher salaries, lower taxes, and a lower cost of living. I moved recently, and I feel I'm already getting ahead faster here than I would in other provinces. If you're thinking about moving, Alberta is definitely worth considering. It also has some of Canada's most stunning scenery. Alberta is calling. Learn more at albertaiscalling.ca. A message from the government of Alberta. Okay, it's just one of the ads in the Alberta is calling ad campaign. My guest, Premier Jason Kenney from Alberta. All right, Premier, tell me about this ad campaign. Where did this idea come from? Well, it came from the fact that uh, we need more people. Uh, Our economy is the fastest growing in Canada, and we're facing a crunch in terms of availability of uh, labor and skills. And we think that's just going to get more significant in the future. Uh, We look around the country and see a huge cost of living difference and not sure that everybody's aware of that. So we just wanted to send a friendly message to our fellow Canadians, not just in the GVR, but also in the Toronto area and other parts of Canada, that... uh, you can really improve your uh, standard of living uh, by coming to the uh, fastest growing economy in Canada with the lowest taxes. You know, the average detached uh, house in the greater Vancouver region, I think you'd know better than me, is, is bounces around $1.2 million right now. In Calgary, yeah. it's like 400K. In Edmonton, it's like uh, 350K. So oh. we, we've calculated that, that $125,000 a year worker in um, Vancouver could move to Calgary, and over 10 years, they are $400,000 better off. That is life-changing, especially <laughs> if people can't afford to get a rent an apartment or buy a house in the first place. Yeah. Okay, you had to play the real estate card, didn't you? Like, oh, come on, this is, <laughs> I this went is right for the juggler there. Yeah. Okay, listen. We need we need these workers too. I mean, what is the good neighbor policy here? I mean, if if this was the other way around, like if British Columbia started advertising in your province and hey, move out to BC, I'm sure you wouldn't be very happy about it. Well, a lot of Albertans do. I mean, you get a lot of our retirees, and uh, I, I, there are a lot of BC workers actually, a lot of whom actually, you know, a lot of folks who live in the Okanagan and the interior and some in the lower mainland that fly up to the oil sands and do two weeks of work there, come back home, stuff like that. So, you know what, our two provinces are very closely integrated and all that. And I mean, look, both of my parents, all four of my grandparents were born in the Vancouver region. So uh, love BC, but I am the premier of Alberta and I got to fight for the best interests of uh, my province. And uh, this is a friendly thing. It's, uh, those are those are pretty low key ads. They're just sharing people with people information. And let me just say this: one of the strengths of a federation is uh, that there's a little bit of a healthy competition going on. And uh, provinces that keep higher taxes and have lower rates of growth or are unaffordable. Well, they're going to tend to see people shift to uh, lower tax and lower cost of living jurisdictions over time. So I think that's a healthy thing. Competition's a good thing. 
Okay, I asked the office of B.C. Premier John Horgan for their thoughts on this yesterday, and they sent me some background information, which includes some in-migration statistics between the two provinces. So according to the B.C. Premier's office here, that in 2021, approximately 36,000 people moved from Alberta to B.C., and 22,000 people moved the other way from B.C., to Alberta. Yeah. So it sounds like there, there's more people moving from your province to our province than the other way around. Is that uh, is that part of the reason for the ad campaign? Well, um, let me put it this way. We, our economy took a tumble in 2015. And we, we really just have started to recover from that in the past year in a significant way. And uh, yeah, some people left, younger people left looking for work. Uh, there's always been a flow of, of seniors going to retire in the warmer weather. I'll grant you this, British Columbia, you've got warmer weather than we do in Alberta. We've got more sunshine, yeah. though. And um, and so, you know, we always have uh, a good cohort of seniors that go to the Okanagan and the, the island. Um, and, and some younger folks have moved to the tech sector in Vancouver. I think some of that's starting to reverse. But that's my point. It's a healthy competition. Well, you got more sunshine while you're breaking your back shoveling snow in the, in the <laughs> winter. Oh, right? trash yeah. talk. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, how are we supposed to feel here? I mean, people, we're, we're supposed to be friendly neighbor, good neighbors here. And here you are trying to steal our, our people. Hey, I'm I'm happy to talk up the, the advantages of British Columbia. I'm just saying, if you if you don't like uh, paying sales tax and and if you want to uh, cut your housing costs by a third and go to an economy with higher uh, incomes, I'm just telling you, there's an option. That's all. Yeah, I understand. Okay, let me play another one of these ads here because this is the one that this is the one that jumped out at me because it hits the housing cost issue. So let's listen to it here. Hey, Vancouver! I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd leave you and move to Edmonton but I had this great job opportunity, so I came here in 2019. And so far, I've been pleasantly surprised. The people here are friendly and helpful. The food scene is amazing. There's plenty of stuff to do. And I bought my first house for just over 400,000, which is kind of like a cherry on top. Alberta is calling. Learn more at albertaiscalling.ca. A message from the government of Alberta. Okay, I got another freebie for you there, Premier. We're not going to charge you for that one, but let me ask you: Are these real people or are these actors in the ads? No, no, these are real people. I, Those I, are real. I think that guy's hilarious. That um, the cherry on the top isn't the food scene, but <laughs> it's the affordable housing. Um, it, those are real folks that we found, and okay. uh, there's, I think we've got about 15 um, people who moved to Alberta in the past couple of years from BC and Ontario. They're doing those ads. Okay, and I thought it was also interesting where he said there that. The guy says, when I moved to Alberta, I was pleasantly surprised. And then the next thing he says is, people are friendly. <laughs> do, you, do you think there is a perception that in Alberta, you know, like maybe people are not so friendly, not so welcoming? I don't think it's, it's that. I do think that there some, in some circles, there are some negative stereotypes about Alberta. Right. And um, what, are the, you, what you are, know, are the stereotypes? What are the negative well, you, stereotypes? You, you, You'd have to tell me. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to down-talk my province. No, I do think that, that some people think, well, it's all just oil and gas and, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it, but when you move here, you realize, actually, it's a very diverse economy. It's a very diverse province as well, like like demographically. Uh, I just think there are some 
dated stereotypes, if you will. And the truth is yeah. uh, this, you know, we've got all the big city amenities in Calgary and, and Edmonton. We've got affordable rural communities. Uh, we, you're, you know, you've got beautiful scenery around Vancouver, but, but here you're 45 minutes from Banff. And uh, so we've got a lot to offer. Would, would you say like one of the negative stereotypes might be there's an impression that maybe there's more intolerance in, in Alberta. Like if you were, let's say, uh, someone who's a visible minority and you move to Alberta or you're, you're a gay or lesbian person or, you know, you might would, some people might think like, ooh. Am I going to am I going to be welcomed in Alberta? Do you think that well, some is people a, a might perception? Think that, but they yeah. they'd be wrong if they if they did. Uh, you know, let me share with you this: the first uh, Muslim elected to the Canadian Parliament was an Alberta Conservative. The first Hindu elected to Parliament an Alberta uh, Conservative. The first Muslim elected in the Commonwealth was an Alberta Conservative Cabinet Minister in 1972. The first Muslim mayor elected in Canada was Nahid Nenshi in Calgary. Uh, we uh, we have been, our legislature was way more diverse even 30 years ago than the B.C. legislature or the Ontario legislature. Uh, You know, this is a meritocracy. Uh, This is a province where people are judged not based on the color of their skin or where they were born or how they pray, but on how hard they work and how well they treat others. And that's one of the uh, really special things that I I, uh, prize about Alberta. Okay, last question for you, Premier. This is an expensive ad campaign that you've launched here. Is it working so far? These ads have been running for several weeks now. We talked earlier about how the numbers were going in the opposite direction. There were more people moving to moving to uh, British Columbia from Alberta than the other way. Do you, are you starting to see any results from this? Are the numbers turning around? Too soon to say. I All mean, right. anecdotally, people are moving here for sure. What we saw in the first quarter of this year from StatsCan was that Alberta was leading the country in net interprovincial migration. And we, we think, like, typically in, during, when the economy is strong here, that happens. Uh, BC is always going to have a good pull with the, with the weather and, and other advantages. But I think, uh, I think we're going to be picking up steam here. And, and Alberta's economy is set to, I think, boom for several years. And um, we, we're, we're going to need the, the people. So it's, my point is, this is not, this is not a, uh, uh, we're not hitting on BC in a negative way here. We're simply saying uh, Alberta's got a lot of opportunities. It's a lot more affordable. Take a look. Give it a thought. Thank you for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Take care. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about the political firefight underway in Vancouver right now over a proposed road tax in the city. Now, this is part of the climate emergency action plan from the city of Vancouver. The city's budget included $1.5 million to study this idea. Whack drivers with the tax every time you drive downtown when you take a look at the climate plan from the city this was described as the game changer action in the plan a road tax in vancouver how much could it raise up to 80 million dollars a year in net revenue for the city 1.5 million bucks to study it are they really going to do this Man, oh man, what a political fight we've got going over this proposed road tax now in the campaign for city council coming up this fall. We discussed this on the show yesterday, and I've got Colleen Hardwick, she's running for mayor, standing by to discuss. First, let's go back to yesterday's show for a second. Alvin Singh, okay, so he is running on the slate with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, and here he is denying 
that they want to bring in this road tax. He says it's off the table. They're not going to do it. Here's what he said. I want to be very clear with your listeners. There is no plan to bring in anything like this. And what's more, Vancouver doesn't even have the authority to do such a thing. And then even if we did, the province wouldn't let us. And Ken Sim knows all of this. His party knows all of this. He knows there's no truth to this campaign. But he seems to have no problems misleading voters. And that's what is at the core of what we're talking about. This is not the type of politics we need in Vancouver. It's really, really concerning. Okay, there he is going after Ken Sim, the candidate for mayor from the ABC Vancouver party. They're running attack ads against Kennedy Stewart saying, don't vote for Stewart, stop his road tax. But you heard Alvin Singh there. He's running on Stuart Slate saying, no, 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 don't believe this. We're not going to do it. Let's check in with Colleen Hardwick now, Vancouver City Councilor. She is also running for mayor this fall with the Team Slate, Team for a Livable Vancouver. Very pleased to welcome her back. Councilor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, Councilor, let's talk about this road tax. You voted against it at City Council, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tell me why. Well, it's part of, as you observed, the larger climate emergency action plan, which I also voted against, because uh, this was an example where we received, I think, a 371-page report uh, the the Wednesday before the Tuesday when we had to vote on it. And uh, when you really dug into the meat of the report, it really boiled down to a $500 million cash grab. And whether it was on the transport side or on the building side, uh, and there's a bunch of sub-reports in each one of these pieces, it all adds up to taking more money out of the pockets of the people that live and work in Vancouver. And it's a persistent uh, theme that we hear constantly at City Hall is we need to find new revenue streams, yeah. new revenue streams, whether they're, you know, then another one of these sub uh, projects was the uh, citywide parking permits. You'll remember that one. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, sure. So that was also part of the part of this plan. So we approved the plan. I voted yeah. against it. And then they start rolling out sub parts of the plan. Uh, it was interesting that the parking one came forward. They expected that that would have, have passed as well. But at the last minute, uh, I guess the mayor read the tea, tea leaves and voted in opposition. But uh, the road pricing or the uh, the transport pricing is just another aspect of that larger plan. What is the status of this road tax or road pricing idea? Like it is being like it's being studied by the city, right? Like there are city resources going to look at this idea, correct? A hundred percent correct. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, it doesn't th- th- all of this stuff. People need to understand that this stuff is moving forward, notwithstanding. And I, f- I find it uh, a little funny that it's playing itself out the way it is in, in this ele- election campaign, because I think people are being disingenuous across the board. We passed the Climate Emergency Action Plan. It has subsets, as I say, both on the transportation and on the building side. And um, they have to be broken out individually and voted on. But the larger direction has been adopted and is being pursued by staff. Yeah, so when you hear uh, Alvin Singh, who is running for council with Mayor Kennedy Stewart Slate there this fall, when you hear him say in the clip we played, like, look, 
we're not doing this. Don't don't believe don't believe anyone who says we're 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 going to do this road tax. It, it's completely off the table. Like, what do you think of that? I think you should read the report of the Climate yeah. Emergency Action Plan. Yeah, that his, and, the mayor voted in favor of. Yeah. So you are you therefore you're not you don't believe when Kennedy Stewart and his team says, look, we're not you know we're not going to do this. You, well, you don't believe them. Read the Climate Emergency Action Plan document that was approved yeah. by this council, including the mayor. Right. Okay. And that includes, if we take a closer look at that plan, it includes a one and a half million dollars to to study the idea. You know, includes hiring a city a city staff team, an outside consulting team, feasibility yeah, I think study. That was, a, that was a tactic to to uh, try and and uh, slow it down perhaps by adding that extra dimension to it. If that had not been there, they just would have gone through damn the uh, the torpedoes, so to speak. Uh, But at the end of the day, the intention of that plan is a half a a billion dollars out of the pockets of the people that live and work in Vancouver. And we can break it down into its component parts and, uh, you know, a- analyze them individually on their merits. But at the end of the day, the big picture uh, plan has been approved by this council. Okay. What kind of impact would that have, let's say, if they did go forward with some sort of mobility pricing or r- a road tax in Vancouver, they would ding you every time you drove downtown? What kind of impact do you think that would have on the city, its economy, the people living and working here? Well, it, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? It's every every additional cost that we put on the people, people are already struggling to afford to live in Vancouver. When we talk about affordability, it's not just housing, it's everything, right? Yeah. So um, this is just adding insult to injury. And as far as going to, back and forth downtown, the business communities will suffer. The, um, the attraction of, of going downtown will diminish. Why would you go downtown if you have to pay money to go there? It's kind of self-evident to me. Right. Now, at the same time, though, we do have a, a climate change emergency, right? Like, you're not a climate change denier. You understand there is a climate change emergency. And you, do you, yeah, and so you believe the city should be doing something. Correct. Of course we should. We have mitigation measures measures that are absolutely essential. But uh, I challenge anybody to read that report and not come away thinking that um, this is uh, yet another way for the city to be extracting revenue. And again, I cannot overemphasize this. Having sat through countless staff council briefings, etc., where I hear the repeated theme, we need to find new revenue streams new revenue streams as we continually expand uh, the role of, of civic government, government in, in the city of Vancouver. Um, it, uh, this is something that's a larger discussion, but there's a reason why we've doubled budgets. We've doubled head, you know, we've added a lot of headcount and a lot of yeah. consultants. So um, yeah. we're constantly looking for more money as we continually build the empire that is the city of Vancouver. Speaking to Vancouver City Councillor Colleen Hardwick, she is running for mayor this fall. So just to go back to climate change and what the city should be doing about it, if there, if you don't do this road tax, you mentioned that mitigation uh, should be part of the strategy. What about trying to drive down greenhouse gas emissions in the city? I mean, that's the point okay, of this well, road tax, right? 
Well, I, I would suggest that we should look at the amount of concrete that we're using in our construction in that case. I think that we're being really inconsistent in the manner in, in which we analyze uh, what we are uh, spending money on and what we think we're, how we're going to be able to move the needle. You know, realistically, we've got 115 square kilometers from Boundary Road to the University Endowment Lands. We have that much land that we can influence um, a, a, a global climate change. And what are the measures that we're going to be able to take? And are they genuinely going to move the needle or is it just a cash grab? We have to when ask you, ourselves that. When you take a look at other cities around the world that have brought in this type of road tax or congestion pricing systems, I mean, for the people who support this idea in Vancouver, they will often point to other cities like London, for example, right? So when you drive into downtown London, that's the deal there. You get whacked with this congestion fee. They've got a, a very intricate system there of cameras and transponders to make sure that anyone driving there gets hit with this tax. Do you think that's like a, a fair or valid comparison to, to for Vancouver to compare itself to a city like London and say we should do the same thing here? Anyone that would do that would has never been to London and has never been in, gone into the city, which is what they refer to the downtown core of London as. It's an entirely different situation. Uh, we're talking about a, a, a much larger and much longer standing city. Uh, and we're just dealing with the peninsula of a city that has, you know, 660,000 people. The comparisons yeah. are weak. Right. And London also has a, a very expansive rapid transit system. You know, they got the underground, they got the tube, you can get anywhere, which is not necessarily the case in Metro Vancouver. Right. Um, again, I would be suggesting we need uh, to be prioritizing more distributed forms of transportation around the city and around the region. Uh, a more sensible way to be distributing density, because, of course, density without transit is just dense. Okay. All right, Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Have fun. All right. All right. Welcome back. Are you in the market for a new or used vehicle? Lots of people are shopping around right now, but it is a difficult market for consumers out there. Prices are up. Supply is down. You may have heard about the global computer chip shortage which has been a problem for a while now, and it's still a problem. I've got Barish Akurek standing by from Auto Trader to discuss. First, have a listen to this report now from News Nation. After effects of the pandemic still linger within the auto industry, especially with computer chips essential in today's cars. According to the National Automobile Dealers Association, the global chip shortage has cut vehicle production and reduced dealership inventories to 40-year lows. You don't have to go very far to drive and see dealership lots, very thin with inventory, and uh, it's changed the dynamics of car buying and car leasing uh, dramatically for dealers, for consumers. In 2021, the price of a new car went up 12% on average and used cars shot up 41%. I've been doing this 25 years. It's, you know, generally around this time of year during tax season, they'll go up just because of the demand for them. 
but nothing near like this. The National Automobile Dealers Association Chief Economist Patrick Manzi says inventory level changes aren't expected until 2023. BMW recently made the same prediction. The CEO at Volkswagen, who has halted production at several factories, has an even gloomier outlook, saying they're not expecting change until 2024. Okay, let's discuss this issue now with my guest, Barish Akurek. Barish is the Director of Market Intelligence for Autotrader.ca, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Barish, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, Barish, some of the numbers we heard in that report were from t- 2021. We're well into into September. Well, we're into September now of, of this year. Are things getting any better out there? Is the supply improving? Yeah, so just to give you the answer for your first question, so looking at prices for July, and new car prices are up by 18.1% on a year-over-year basis. The average price of a new car is now um, just over $55,000. On the used side, and on the used side, uh, things are a little different. So again, prices are up by 32% on a year-over-year basis uh, for July, and you're looking at just below uh, $38,000. But the... uh, I guess the uh, good news is that this is the uh, July was the first month uh, after 17 months where we uh, experienced a slight decline in used car prices on a month over month basis. And when I looked at the data for uh, for August, uh, we see a similar trend. So another 0.4% decline on a month over month basis. So uh, based on what we see, uh, the market seems to be, especially on the used side, the the prices seem to be plateauing at this point. Wow. Okay. Whoa. Those are some big numbers there on those price hikes. Nice to hear that it's cooling off a little bit. What do you think w- was driving those dramatic price increases year over year? Right. So uh, I think I can explain this in simple uh, economics terms by looking at the supply and demand. As I was listening to the intro, um, you know, it's obvious that there's much less inventory in, in, in the market because of COVID. So uh, fewer cars available. Uh, but on the other hand, when we looked at the demand throughout the pandemic, we saw a pretty strong demand throughout. So uh, supply is low, demand is high. And what happens to the prices? Prices have gone up accordingly. Yeah, yeah. No, the prices are up. Yeah, a lot. Um, let's talk about some of the research you've been doing there at Auto Trader. And this is a really, really interesting snapshot of the marketplace out there right now, especially in the time that it takes for a car to be sold. So tell me about that, Barish, what you found out, like when a car is put up for sale, whether it's a new car or a used car, and how long it takes for it to sell, because these, it sounds like these vehicles are snapped up pretty quickly when they're offered for sale. Right. So we look at the market, uh, how, how long it takes uh, for the car to be in the market uh, based on the data we, we, we collect um, uh, on the site. So both uh, new and used, uh, on the new and new side, both, uh, for both uh, the, the duration of, the, uh, the, duration of the, the vehicle that uh, it's, it stays in the market is much lower. So just to give you a couple of examples. Yeah. New cars are down by 78%, being in 2021, we were looking at 168 days. Now it's around uh, 37 days. 
And on the use side, it was 114 days. Now we are looking at 55 days, which is a 57% decline. So again, wow. going back to what we just talked about, right? Less cars are available, uh, but the demand is relatively strong. So uh, when consumers find the cars that they're looking for, uh, they snap it up relatively quickly. Yeah, for sure. When a car goes up for sale, yeah, people are, are buying them. They're, they're swooping in there to buy the vehicles that are available. My guest is Barish Akurek from Auto Trader. We heard in that report we played Barish uh, about the microchip issue, which has been around for quite a long time now. We've been dealing with this for quite a while. Is it getting any better? That's right. So uh, there are some uh, there are some uh, good signs. So we believe uh, the market's going to recover a little bit uh, in uh, in the second half of 2022. Uh, it's not going to go back to pre-COVID levels uh, in 2022. What, what, but what we believe is going to happen is that there's going to be uh, more inventory. Uh, so by looking at our own new car inventory on the site, we are seeing some improvement in the last uh, couple of months. So uh, we hope that uh, it's, a, it's a good sign and it's, it's yeah. a good sign to, to, for, the, for the things to come. Uh, so uh, H2 is going to be better. Uh, and what, so the reason that, you know, in, when the inventory comes back uh, or improves, the situation improves, we believe that this is going to reflect into prices, right? Because more availability uh, and the prices are going to uh, probably soften, soften down going forward. Okay, let's talk a little bit about consumer behavior here, given these market conditions for new and used vehicles right now, Barish. I know you've done some interesting surveys here on when people are shopping for a vehicle, where, how far are they willing to travel to, to purchase a vehicle? How many hours are they willing to spend in a search for a vehicle? Tell me about some of the highlights there you found out. Yeah, no. So, I mean, during COVID, we've adapted to a lot of different things and car shoppers uh, seem to be, you know, they, they seem to be adapting as well. So overall, um, when, so we do this survey on a yearly basis and this is the second time that we've run it. We have a, our own internal research team that uh, to understand consumer behavior in detail. So a couple of uh, points, as you mentioned. Uh, 61% of consumers are willing to travel more, and this is compared to 2021 is much higher. It was 41% last year. Uh, so, and the the other interesting fact about this is that 33% of the 61% who are willing to travel more, they're willing to travel more than 400 kilometers to get the car that they need, which is obviously pretty high. 400, uh, 400 kilometers. So people are willing to travel. 400 clicks like to get the car they want wow that is correct that is correct yes uh you know again going back to the availability situation if if you're you know if you really want to make a model or brand or trim uh that you're particularly interested in if you find one you'll uh, you'll you'll travel and the other thing is that there's more and more research going on so consumers are 50% 50% of the consumers that we researched, we surveyed, they said that they're spending additional two to four hours a week to find the cars that they need. And then we actually see this on, on our website as well. We have a bunch of tools, compare, comparison tools, and that enables consumers to do comparison shopping. And we see a pretty uh, huge increase in usage of these tools as well. And one other interesting thing that I'd like to mention is that the switch from new and used. 
So when we asked consumers last year, they said 27% of the consumers said that they're willing to switch from new to use. And this year it was 36%. So again, uh, looking at the inventory availability, new car situation is it's pretty limited still. But on the use, uh, use side of things, uh, inventory has right. been improving uh, since the beginning of the since the beginning of the uh, of this year, so consumers seem to be switching from new to use for obvious reasons and uh, uh, and to find the cars that they need to find. Barish, it's always great to have you on with your analysis. Thank you for coming on today. Of course, anytime. Thanks for having uh, okay. me. All right, let's talk about the police crackdown on distracted driving now. ICBC and local police this week announced a one-month enforcement campaign against distracted driving. The number one offense they are looking for, of course, is using your cell phone behind the wheel, texting, talking on your phone. Don't even touch the phone. They will get you for sure. Now, get this. It included setting up a fake construction site this week in Delta. This happened on Tuesday. So police set up a mock construction site in order to get drivers to slow down and stop for a flagger at a construction site, right? And then why did they do that? Because the cops are there to catch you when you use your phone while you're waiting at this construction site. This was a one-day sting operation that they did in order to demonstrate how many people are still using their phone behind the wheel. ICBC put out a, a survey results this week saying people are not getting the message. People are still willing to use the phone behind the wheel, even though a lot of people know if you get caught, it's big bucks and penalty points on your driving record. Setting up a fake construction site. Now, this was just a one-day thing. It was kind of a media publicity thing. They did write up a bunch of tickets. They caught people at this fake construction site. They ticketed people for distracted driving. I'm going to tell you more about that in a sec. First, have a listen to this ad, this public service ad now from your friendly, your lo your friendly local police department. Smiley face emoji posters. Map checkers, phone call makers, swipers, likers, and status updaters. We see you. Bumper to bumper, at a red light, just waiting your turn at a four-way stop. We see you. Because your cell phone hiding antics aren't a match for our tactics. New tools, new techniques, new ways to catch distracted drivers. Think you won't get caught? It's only a matter of time before we see you. Brought to you by your local police. Okay, uh, local police are coming to get you here on distracted driving. My guest is Kyla Lee, criminal lawyer at Acumen Law. She's our specialist in traffic law. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. I first heard about this uh, this fake construction site on your, your Twitter feed, which I encourage everyone to follow. You know, what do you think about that? Like setting up a, like a sting operation like that, a fake construction site catching people distracted driving like even if it is just a one-day publicity thing you think that's fair no i don't i think that this is the type of thing that really undermines the credibility of the good distracted driving work that police and icbc are trying to do i also think that doing that is probably unlawful and likely could amount to entrapment if people were to challenge the tickets and argue that they were essentially subject to uh, police random virtue testing Wow. Okay. Well, I asked ICBC yesterday how many tickets they wrote up, 
at this fake construction site. They could not tell me the precise number. They did say some people some people were ticketed though. So you think like if you brought that ticket in front of a judge and you said, "Hey, this was not a real construction site. This was a, a fake construction site that was set up to catch to catch distracted drivers." You think that you'd, you'd get the person off the off the uh, beat the rap on that? I think so. In Canadian law, police are, you know, obviously they're entitled to do sting operations. But when they do them, they have to have a reasonable suspicion that a particular person is involved in illegal activity or that illegal activity is associated to the specific place where they're conducting the sting operations. They don't have any specific belief that the location where they set up this fake construction zone is a specific location where distracted driving occurs. And certainly they would have no way of knowing who the drivers were that they were going to encounter. So it is, it does fall within the definition, in my opinion, of what the courts have characterized as random virtue testing, which is a form Mm. of police entrapment. Okay, that's very interesting. We talked about this on yesterday's show. I interviewed Grant Gutgetru, who is a former traffic police officer. He is now a consultant. And I asked him, Kyla, what he thought about this, this, fake, uh, tra- this fake construction site and whether the tickets were valid. Here's what he had to say to me. At the end of the day, if you're still, getting, if you're still using your cell phone today, 12 years after the fact the law came in, you're an idiot, right? Yeah. But... Uh. but People are going to continue to do what they want as long as they have free will. I mean, the penalty for murder is life in prison, but people still commit murders, right? So nothing you do for a penalty for touching your phone is going to change people's behavior. Okay, what do you think about that? He says, like, if even if you, if you touch your phone, if you do commit this offense right now, basically you're a foolish person because you, everyone should know right now that you should not do it under any circumstances. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, obviously, you shouldn't touch your phone or pick up your phone while you're driving, and you should take as many steps as possible to minimize the risk. But I also know, and you have to be realistic, that people aren't going to change their behavior. And the better approach for police to take, rather than sort of um, lulling people into a situation where they're more likely to engage in that conduct is to educate the public on strategies that they can use, things that they can do before they get in the car to minimize the risk that they're going to be tempted by their phone and all of those notifications and all of those messages and all of those emails that they've been missing while they're waiting, stuck in traffic, waiting for a flagger to turn the sign to say slow. Yeah, another thing that Grant told me yesterday in his career as a traffic cop, he told me that there was a lot of pressure by senior officers and managers and police to go out and nab people for distracted driving for using their phone. You know, and he said he made an argument that shouldn't we be spending more time catching people who are speeding? Like, aren't they a bigger risk to public safety? rather than someone checking a text message when they're stopped at a red light. And he said, no, that he was told, no, just go out and catch those distracted drivers. And the way he thought, you know, the way he kind of framed it was, it was more like a, like a cash grab rather than a public safety thing. What do you think of that? 
Well, especially when police are setting up fake construction sites to catch people. And, you know, I appreciate that there was some level of let's pay attention to distracted driving awareness involved. But when police are engaging in that, when they're creating a risk on the roadway for the purposes of getting more people, it does start to undermine what they're doing. When they stand in, in traffic that backs up at very long lights and walk up and down the lines of cars looking for the people that glance at their phone while they know they've got two and a half minutes before the light's going to change to green again there it does have a stink to it that i think a lot of people aren't quite comfortable with i don't think you get much disagreement from anybody including me that using your phone while your car is moving or while you're even moving the head slowly in a line is dangerous but when you're completely stopped that's where a lot of people find frustration and yet that's the majority of distracted driving cases are people who are stopped not people who are actively using the phone while moving the vehicle Yeah. Yeah. I really think that's the critical point here. Like if you're trying to send a text message with one hand on your phone while you're, while you're moving, you know, I could, I don't think anyone could dispute that's, that's dangerous. And you probably should be ticketed for that. But if you're stopped, you know, I had a guy tell me he got, he got rung up on a distracted driving ticket while he was stopped at a level crossing for a train going by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like this train is going by and taking minutes to go by this long train and you get caught for distracted driving. You're basically parked. So yeah, is you- that is that fair? Go ahead. It's not fair. And, you know, we see all sorts of cases like that. We saw when we had those really big long lines at the COVID testing centers, police started to do distracted driving enforcement in those lines. We saw cases where where people have been uh, rung up for distracted driving while in line at the drive through and using their phones to try and pay and police officers, you know, claiming to pose as as just uh, drive through workers to catch more people, police peering from the windows of uh, transit buses um, to catch people who are stopped in traffic. There's all these tactics to catch people who are posing the least amount of risk. And yet we hear very little about tactics used to catch the people who are posing the most amount of risk. Right. And including some undercover tactics that are used, right? Like I had Grant, my guest yesterday, Grant told me, the former police officer, that he at times would disguise himself as a panhandler, like, like, you know, almost like a homeless person on the street at an intersection. And guess what? He's not a homeless person. He's a police officer. He sees you use your phone. Bam, you've got a ticket. Like, if you, like, let's say, has that ever happened to one of your clients? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had them uh, given by uh, people who are in disguise, people who are hiding in bushes and calling ahead to another officer over the radio. So nobody even sees the spotter. These are common things that the police do. Yeah. And is that entrapment or is that? I mean, you can't fight that in court, like you're red-handed, basically, even though the police officer is disguised. Yes, and that's that's not entrapment because you're not putting people in a situation where they're more likely to engage in the activity. You're waiting in a place where the activity might happen. You know, the intersection lights are going to change anyway, but the, the construction zone, creating right. the construction zone is creating the thing that they know is going to lead to more people picking up their phones. Right, okay, and how much is the fine for distracted driving? $368 plus four driver penalty points. Right. And it's four points for every offense, right? So if you get another distracted driving, you've got another four points on top of that. Is that right? That's correct. And yeah. if you get two distracted driving tickets, you also trigger the driver risk premium, which is $340 a year every year for three years. 
Oh, man, this thing could really add up. And like four points, let's say you just have one distracted driving ticket. You've got four penalty points. Does that increase your insurance premiums? It's considered to be a high-risk offense, so it does increase your insurance rates with ICDC. Depending on your other driver factors, the increase might not be much. But um, And it will also, if you have a Class 7N license or an L license, you will lose your driver's license. They'll yank your license for three to five months just for one ticket. All right. Welcome back to the show. My guest, Kyla Lee, talking distracted driving. Let's go right to your phone calls. Alex in Richmond. Hi, Alex. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. It'll be 10 years on Sunday that I got taken out by a distracted driver while riding my bicycle to work. My life has been ruined. I can't work. I live in chronic pain. And uh, what scares me more is seeing police officers play at their computers. Well, I shouldn't say play with computers, but use the computers while they're driving their car. That terrifies me. Hey, Alex, I'm very sorry to hear about that. Um, was the driver, when you say it was a distracted driver, was the driver on their phone when they hit you? We, I think we lost him there. Okay. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry to hear that you suffered that accident. Dan and are you, Kyla, do you want to weigh in on the police using their computers? You know, it's an exception that's provided for in the Motor Vehicle Act regulations that police and other uh, operators of emergency vehicles, certain categories of people can use um, their dash-mounted computers or electronic devices in the course of their okay. duties. Um, it makes a lot of people angry, though. I get a lot of complaints about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard that complaint, too. But I, I can sort of understand the exemption, though, too. Dan in Surrey. Hi, Dan. Hi. I also received a ticket for distracted driving, uh, just sitting at a, at a light and looking at a message, not using my phone. Well, I guess that is using my phone, but looking at the message. And yeah. uh, I think I ended up paying almost $600. But what I find is really funny is the fact that Patterson signs are allowed to put these giant movie theater billboards on the entrances to bridges everywhere, and they don't think that's distractive driving. I'm looking at those things all the time. You know, it's it's incredible that they get away with putting up those signs at the entrances, to, especially to bridges and stuff. Okay, Kyla, is that distracted driving? It is. It's not something that you can get a ticket for, obviously, but it is categorized by ICDC when they compile their stats of distracted driving-related crashes and deaths. People who are distracted by external factors outside their vehicles are classified into distracted drivers for the purposes Mm. of the stats. Oh, okay. Glenn and Maple Ridge. Hi, Glenn. Go ahead. Hey, I'd just like to say, uh, Kyla Lee and uh, your uh, your partner, Paul, there, you guys do a fantastic job in uh, in your ongoing fighting. You, know, you guys have been doing this for quite some time um, of uh, of keeping overreach of the police and their and their powers in check. Because um, setting up a, a fake construction site is just another one of their tactics that is kind of borders on the entrapment. And uh, you guys keep up the good work and even keep though the, uh, keep even the heat though- on them. Hey, Glenn, even though it was just one day, though, right? It was basically just a publicity stunt. Yeah, it was a publicity stunt, but they, they do other tactics where they pop up and, uh, and, and make it look like, the, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's an everyday situation when, when they're really trying to entrap people and, mm. and, 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 and ticket them. It's a money grab. It's basically it's a money grab by the municipality that needs to uh, raise some revenues. Hey, get out there. We need some cash because uh, you guys are a little low on the budget. Kyla okay. knows this. We all know this. It's a joke. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, keep up the good work, you guys. Keep okay. Fighting. 
Thank you, Glenn. Okay, Kyle, you got a fan there. Let's squeeze in one more. James in White Rock. James, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call because I was one that asked this question of your off- of the former officer yesterday. I got off on a distracted driving ticket in Langley because they did have a homeless person that was standing on the median with a sign looking for people taking pictures. And I got off because the judge said that they cannot engage in illegal activities to enforce the law. And basically oh. I had proof because I had a picture of him holding up a sign on the median right in, with a sign behind him that says panhandling is illegal and can be subject to a fine. Kyla, we got 30 seconds. What do you think of that? I love that. That's a very smart argument that you made. So kudos to you on that. And I think the ruling is quite correct. Police can't uh, themselves violate the law without justification in very limited circumstances mm. just to enforce traffic ticket laws. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me.